You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bookish. The canon continues. I am your host, Michelle Collins. And today we are going to be talking about a big, heavy hitter of a book. Um, joining me at the microphone is my good friend, Dylan Neighbor Cruz. Many of you might remember Dylan has already been here once. We did a little bit of a discussion on Living Buddha, Living Christ, which by the way, still a book I discuss quite often with people and just did the other day. So it was a good one, Dylan. So thank you. Yeah. Um, but in case you weren't here with us before, I'm going to go ahead and have Dylan introduce himself and then introduce the book that we're going to be talking about today. So a little bit of the back of the book bio, Dylan. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks for having me back. Uh, my name is Dylan Neighbor Cruz. I am a historian, theologian, and permaculturist living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and author of Go Golden, Applying a Universal Religious Teaching and the Ethics of Permaculture to Create a Sustainable, Just, Happier World. And um, the book that we're going to be talking about this evening is Stamped from the Beginning by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Yes. And it's The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America is the subtitle. And boy, is it. Um, as I, I had just told Dylan while we were chatting before we started recording, this is a hefty book, um, not just in its subject matter, but even the size of it. It's, it was a little intimidating to pick it up and go, oh, boy. Um, quite honestly, there's so much detail here that there's no way we do it justice in the next 55 minutes. There's just not possible. Uh, at least in my opinion, I don't know. Do you, what do you think? Uh, well, I think that there is, um, this book is definitive. It's incredibly thorough. Yes. And I think every history student in the United States of America should read it. Oh, for sure. I, I definitely would agree with that. And I was just sharing with Dylan a minute ago, my, my youngest son has a degree in history. And I had just said to him, this is a book I think you would really find interesting just from the historical value alone. Um, there, as, as Dylan said, there's so much detail and things that I, I had no idea. I had never learned in school. Um, so that, I mean, that's another whole subject matter in and of itself. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, we've had so much civil unrest in our country recently, uh, racial disquiet and things of that matter. Um, I mean, right down to murder. I, I mean, I know that that's a strong word and I know some people will react negatively to that, but I don't know what else we can call it. Um, when we're watching a video of a black man being held down until he died, um, with no concern for his physical well-being, no concern to check, uh, to protect, or to serve. I don't know what else we can call it but murder. Um, that's my opinion. I know that there will be people that differ with me on that. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Dylan? Is that your definition of it? Uh, if we're talking about what happened to Mr. George Floyd, absolutely. Yeah. That's that's yeah. a uh, non-judicial execution yes. in broad daylight. Absolutely. And uh, and sadly enough, only the latest of quite a few um, that were very well presented in the in the media. Um, to this date, uh, there still has been no arrest for Breonna Taylor's death. Um, That's right. And I read I read something today that said after being shot five times that her boyfriend said she was still alive for about 30 minutes 
um, and that not one person tried to help her, uh, which is disgusting um, over and above the outrage that you feel about that whole subject matter that in and of itself is very disturbing. Um, so this is, this is a necessary conversation and I would venture to, to guess that there are a lot of people that are like, we just need to move on already. And, you know, the civil unrest has been going on for quite a few weeks. Um, we need to get back to normal. And (laughs) (laughs) I have to laugh at that too. I mean, you just chuckled as well. I have to, I have to laugh at that because what is normal? I mean, basically what we're seeing right now is normal. Um, you know, as disgusting as that is. So there is no better time for this conversation. It's long overdue. And it certainly should not be pushed to the side just because people are tired of hearing about it. It should continue to be center stage until we have a lot more resolution uh, to to the problem. And I just don't know how realistic that is. I mean, we've seen a lot in the last few weeks, you know, um, different responses and, you know, from companies and politicians and whatnot. And yet we still have a very large problem in our country. Um, so I, again, I think this book is necessary and we should probably get into it because as I said, it's big and I don't think that we're going to do justice <laughs> to the conversation as far as how much we get through. So um, I have quite a few notes, but I'm going to go ahead and let you start, Dylan. Tell me, well, first of all, I mean, it's not hard to guess this, but in keeping with our theme of bridging the sacred and secular divide, what about this book is inspiring to you or is attractive to you as it pertains to your spirituality? Well, the, the entire idea for me of, of having a, a type of Christian faith, um, and, and I say a type of Christian faith because I'm no longer fundamentalist, evangelical, I'm much more on the progressive side of things. Uh, it's love of neighbor and golden rule. And we can't love our neighbors while espousing racist ideas, enacting racist policies, mm-hmm. or turning a blind eye to these things. Right. And you were just saying, you know, people are getting tired of the protest. Well, <laughs> black people have been tired of racist ideas for 600 years. Right. And or 500, 600, um, you know, 1500s, uh, that Dr. Kendi says that, that, that these racist ideas started happening right. uh, and being promulgated. And so for me, we can't live into the Pauline ethic of Galatians where everybody in Christ, uh, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, or any we're in between and we're all in Christ. We can't do that while there's this prevailing, completely false, 100% spurious notion that there's something great about whiteness and something mm-hmm. wrong with blackness. We can't right. get to uh, the kingdom of God holding those kinds of views. Right. But unfortunately, we both are aware that throughout the history of Christianity, those racial ideas are there. Um, Those racist discriminatory discriminatory ideas are included. um, And many that would call themselves good Christians hold on to those values today. Oh, um, absolutely. And see no problem with it whatsoever. Um, Or they dismiss it as unimportant and uh, an insult to their heritage if it's changed. Um, right. 
which I find laughable. But anyway, again, <laughs> these are all my opinions. So, <laughs> um, but I did, in, and I, I'm going to step in and say one thing here at the beginning of the book, he, uh, he did something that I honestly, he introduced a subject that I, in all honesty, was unaware of. I feel very awful for being this ignorant. Um, but he talks about how the book is framed and he goes back and, um, talks about the three different sides, if you will, to any discussion on racial disparity. And he said, we have the group called the segregationist, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. and basically segregationists are people that are blaming black people, uh, for the racial disparities. Um, then he had a second group, uh, the anti-racists, uh, who are, pretty much blaming everybody outside of blacks for any kind of racial disparity. And then he had, and this is the one I was kind of ignorant on the assimilationists, which is almost an apologetic Mm -hmm. position that tries to see the value of both segregation and anti-racism and, you know, try to find that middle ground. And I think that's one of the things that we hear and see a lot, or at least I do in my social media uh, experience is somebody always trying to find that middle ground to hold the peace, so to speak. Right. Um, without realizing that often when we put ourselves in that position, we are downplaying the role of racism in our country and the effect it has on people now. Um, we're not, we're not calling out something as wrong. We're just trying to mitigate other people's response to it is how I see it anyway. Um, and I was ignorant of that, of that. And I, uh, to be honest, I've probably been guilty of that. Um, Oh, I know I have. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, the segregationist view is, is really, the, the one that people think of as racism. You know, right. that's the right. view that says that there is something innately wrong with black people and something innately wonderful about white people. And exactly. that's how we get, uh, you know, ch- chattel slavery in, in the United States. Right. Exactly. The assimilationist view, um, what struck me is how if you don't dig just a little bit, it's the, the the arguments that they present sound tantalizing. Yes, a- almost in the same way that the that the idea of redemptive violence sounds. Yes, uh, seductive. You know, because redemptive violence says that my violence is good, your violence is bad. Right. And assimilationists were saying, well, yes, there is discrimination, but also black people are at fault because they suck, and <laughs> you know. <laughs> You can't, you can't do that. And what was right. really striking to me was, A, I was reading it and going, okay, wait a minute. I have to slow the hell down here and try mm-hmm. to understand what Dr. Kendi's saying because on the surface, like right at that surface level, some of the things that the assimilationist uh, arguments that were being made by various people, well, if you don't stop for a second, they sound mm-hmm. like, hmm a little bit reasonable, yes. uh, particularly the one that says that, um, that slavery turned African, uh, descended people into brutes. Yes. And, and I was shocked when I read that. I was like, wow. I mean, it, first of all, that's a dramatic word. Right. Um, and, and I was kind of shocked when I read that. I, that's never been my line of thinking, but when mm-hmm. he went back and explained it, I was like, okay, I see 
where that came from. As a matter of fact, he even presents an argument pretty early in the book on the it's within the origins of racist ideas that um, that this kind of mindset was inherited from English thinkers, and mm-hmm. that African slavery was actually natural, normal, and holy. Yeah, that's shocking. So there was this idea of this brute mentality and that it was normal and healthy that we were supposed to control that. Right. It's, it's fascinating. The, what really was striking to me was, you know, th- there's almost this evolution when he, he gets to, he, he started talking about in the 1680s, there were already Mennonites that were going, nope, this is wrong, y'all. Right. This is wrong. Uh, in Germantown, Pennsylvania, which is right down the road from me, like an hour and yes. a half. Yeah. Um, and and then, you know, you get to um, William Lord Garrison, who is is this fiery abolitionist. But in the midst of his abolitionist uh, newspaper speeches and campaign, he's still using assimilationist rhetoric. Yes. Right. Webb Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois. Um mm-hmm. You know, who I, in my study of history, that's my undergraduate background, uh, in classes on um, American history or African-American history, I, you know, he was held up as this idea of anti-racism. Yeah. As was Dr. King. And reading that W.E.B. Du Bois and Dr. King both used assimilationist rhetoric was was not only shocking, but kind of a kick to the gut. Yeah, very much so. (laughs) But also like, okay, so if even these two giants of civil rights and African-American heritage can fall into that assimilationist trap, Mm -hmm. then white people can certainly do it a lot more readily because so many of us have to extricate ourselves from the more horrific uh, or seemingly horrific segregationist ideas. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would term the assimilationist ideas, the guy that shows up in the the slickest suit and the fanciest car and he's got this, you know, he's got the rhetoric down and he sounds so good. Right. But underneath that is, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And right. so these it it took a lot of mental wrangling. And my fiance is an African uh woman from Guadalupe. Mm. Um and I was like, I, I, I need to I need to bounce this off of you. You know, she she's right. a, an academic and she does research on colonialism and white oh, wow. uh, supremacy and stuff like that for her, for her academic endeavors. She's a French and Francophone studies professor. Hmm. And I was talking to her about these assimilationist ideas and just trying to understand it better. And the root of it is, is that there's still that idea that there's something inherently wrong with black people. Right. right. And black culture and if they don't look sound and act like the prevailing anglo-european culture then they're wrong and i was like oh my god how many times in my life did i look at a person 
most mostly a person of color and often a black person of color and go, boy, wouldn't it be nice if they pull their pants after <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if they weren't blaring that music? You know, and, th- and most of those attitudes were many, many years ago for me, but not all of them. Right. You know, not all of them. Well, we catch and, ourselves often. We catch ourselves yeah. with this ingrained thinking that, it, you know, is not something that we've probably ever even considered or evaluated mm-hmm. and decided, oh, this is how I'm going to be. It's just a leftover of conditioning. Right. And because of that, a lot of times things will come out of our mouth or go through our mind that haven't gone through that filter of, is this okay? And mm-hmm. not okay is, is this politically acceptable? But okay, is this okay from a human standpoint to see another individual in this fashion or in this manner? Um, right. And, and so it's a lousy excuse, quite honestly, but we're conditioned that way. And it takes a lot of work and attention to detail and mindfulness to actually change your mind about some of this stuff. Because oh, we're absolutely. often well, we're often victims of that triggered response, that triggered desire to defend ourselves. And and we see that often. As soon as somebody has a, a behavior or something they've said pointed out to them as, hey, this could be construed as racist, immediately there's pushback. I'm not a racist. But there's no evaluation as to what was said uh, or the behavior. To say, well, let me let me consider that. I had never thought of it that way. We don't see that very often, right? And that's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I still have so many conversations with people about racism, systemic racism, white privilege, and that sort of thing. And right. and and it and it boggles my mind that in 2020, with all of the information that we have available to us from the historical record to sociologists, psychology, theology, et cetera, across multiple disciplines that say, yes, this is a thing. This is white privilege is very real. Unmerited right. advantages for white people is how things have been running. Uh, seeing black people as inferior and needing to become like white people is, has always been a uh, the history of our country. Right. I, I grew up in a house where my mom's favorite expression when she was in her twenties was I'm free white 21. Oh, wow. And that means <laughs> I can do whatever I want. And there's a picture of us, my mom, my toddler sister, and me is about four years old in a kitchen with a giant Confederate flag on the wall. Wow. We were from Kansas City, Missouri, right. not you know, somewhere down south. Right. Uh, you know, so there was no heritage, not hate. It was just pure racism. I heard mm-hmm. members of my family, my father used to describe people of color or black people as the blacks. Yeah, as a I remember that. Yeah, I remember you that know? as well. Yeah. And and my grandfather using the N word. And me thinking that I had risen above it all and then find out, oh, nope, nope, <laughs> um, you haven't. And my New Testament professor in seminary is a guy named uh, Dr. Greg Carey, and he's from Alabama. And he was talking to us in one of our classes one day, and he goes, you know, I, as a white person, am probably never going to be done hmm. working towards anti-racism. Well, yeah. I think that's a valid statement. Uh, I, I do too. And, you know, as much progress as I like to think I've made, yes. <laughs> um, you know, I wouldn't have 
struggled with the concepts of this book so hard if some of that stuff wasn't still in there. Right. And Dr. Kendi, to his credit, said, this book changed me. I believed right. in racist ideas. Of, and that's one of the big takeaways from this. You know, I kind of thought that, you know, I, I didn't know how to understand or contextualize people like Candace Owens. Yeah, that's a difficult one, in all honesty. Or, or, or Herman Cain, right. uh, or this kid named C.J. Pearson on Twitter, who is <laughs> of their ilk, right? right? And But Dr. Kendi makes it very clear that Black people consume these racist ideas. Yes. And they become racist themselves, against themselves. Right. And uh, uh, it's just like... <clears throat> Mind-blowing thing, you know? Well, because Um, I think we tend to look at it as an all-or-nothing situation. Like, well, all Black people are victims of racism. And and they're certainly not perpetrators thereof. Um, But as you said, he makes that point that, yes, that is a possibility. And often a reality. Yeah. And so we have to recognize that. But again, that's another... Uh, emotional idea or statement that will immediately garner pushback Mm -hmm. um, without having taken time to evaluate it or do the work and educate oneself on the subject matter and then make a decision. You know, I I think we've come to a point where we all have to have an opinion right away instead of holding up our hand and saying, well, hold on, let me evaluate it. And I'll come back to you with an opinion because often that would help us allow, or it would allow time to educate ourselves so that we have an, uh, you know, a studied perspective of the subject matter. And in this case, again, I think there would be a lot of people that would be very upset with the idea of saying, yes, this, this is a possibility as well. Um, it's, again, I think you're expressing concern and surprise that in 2020, this is still a problem, but I, I have the same concerns and surprise, and yet I don't. I, I feel like after reading this, it, it makes sense. That yeah. we are still deep within this conversation. We're nowhere near the end of it. That's true. And and it's unfortunate. And and what I meant by that was that there are still people who don't get it. Right. You know, um, and some of those people, like I, I went to seminary with a guy uh, from Philadelphia, black, conservative, um, theologically conservative. Uh, pastor in the um, Pentecostal tradition. Mm-hmm. And he told me he was a Republican Trump supporter. And mm-hmm. I, I damn near fell down. And I just looked at him. <laughs> and so I, I just like, I looked at him with this incredulous look. And I was like, how do you right. make that connection in your head that, that that's okay? And now having read this book, Mm-hmm. I can understand it a little bit more. Right. Um, and I, I can't remember which seminary class it was, but we were reading Bell Hooks. Oh, uh, she's great. Yeah. Um, this book on called Teaching Community, I think it, mm-hmm. I think was the, the one we were reading. And if I'm, my memory might be fuzzy, I might be attributing <laughs> this to the wrong book, but um it was the first time I'd heard read anything of a critique of the so-called melting pot idea. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I read it, it was like, 
somebody flipped a switch in my head and I went, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's, wow, okay, that is hugely problematic and and a 100% assimilationist idea. Well, for sure, because it's another one of those ideas that sounds right on the surface. Yeah. And, until you get into the idea that it's basically dumbing down everybody. Right. And disallowing and them to be who they are to explore their heritage or to be proud of their heritage. It, it sets whiteness as the normative baseline right. or, or, or Anglo-European whiteness and culture, which then translates into American culture, uh, you know, broadly speaking. Right. And says, this is the baseline normal. If you go outside of this, you're not part of the melting pot. So why don't you just jump in here where it's nice and cozy and warm and get all melted up in here and lose every sense of self and identity, except for the white people. The white people don't have to lose their sense of self and identity. Well, yeah, because theirs is considered the right one. Right. Um, And so it's the normal one. Yeah, right. And that's why that, that idea of the melting pot or these assimilationist ideas are racist ideas. Right, right. And yeah, it's, I mean, again, he, he presented that as a separate category. And, and as I was presented with different things throughout the book, I kept coming back to that, almost that same idea that this still reeks of racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In one way or another, I can see that maybe I, at the very surface level, I can give the benefit of the doubt and say maybe the heart is in the right place. But it it still completely falls within the idea of racist ideas. Yes. Um, as it pertains to a people group and saying, here's how you're supposed to look. And this will just keep the peace if you'll just do this. Rather than saying, no, the way you're being treated is wrong. And And there's no justification around it. There's no softening that viewpoint. It, it It's just wrong. The assimilationist idea doesn't do that. It, it looks for that middle ground, that status quo. And again, going back to the idea of a Christian response, that tends to seem right. Mm-hmm. Like we're trying to see all sides. We're trying to be so fair. But in the end, wrong is still wrong. Yes. So it, it's very interesting um, the way it plays out for us, you know, in our mindset and then how it how our mindset becomes our actions in public and in society and sets precedent and sets protocol and sets laws and all of these things without ever having taken the time to evaluate whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. And it's one thing to try to mitigate conflict. Right. Absolutely. But it's another thing to completely try to go to, to say, well, you're just being divisive by bringing up race. Well, white right. people have been bringing up race again since the 15 fucking hundreds. Yes, so exactly. <laughs> we as white people, and I'm as white as they come, uh, according to my DNA test, right. I am super duper fucking white. Me um, too. <laughs> we've been playing the race card for hundreds of years right. by trying to make whiteness normative right so if people push back on that they're not playing the race card they're trying to get us to lay our cards down Mm -hmm. and you know as a christian uh as a very imperfect follower of jesus who has (laughs) 
a shit ton of anger issues. Um, oh, me too. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I try to avoid conflict at times, but this is not something that we can just sweep under the rug. It is monolithic. Right. in our society and culture. And so the only way that we can dismantle it, as as Dr. Angela Davis said, it's not enough to be uh, non-racist. You have to be anti-racist in a completely racist society. You yes. have to be anti-racist. And so you can't get to anti-racism without having these painful discussions. Right. I think that we really need to look at the model from South Africa, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that took place after the era of apartheid. Mm -hmm. And we have to seriously, seriously consider, not consider, uh, enact reparations uh, and do our own American version of a truth and reconciliation commission right so that we can get past the oh like a conversation that i was having on social media today somebody posted a meme that said white you know it's talking about masks and white people because all the videos i see are white people bitching about wearing a mask <laughs> and all the people i see when i go to the grocery store who aren't wearing a mask are white etc and this guy said oh more divisive anti-white rhetoric. And so I, as I am wont to do, um, <laughs> jumped in there, be somebody and, mm -hmm. you know, try to explain from a historical perspective, uh, the, the problem of systemic racism. And this guy's whole premise was that white privilege was a fallacy. Mm. And he had posted a video of, of a number of black uh, people saying um, that systemic racism was a myth. Right. And, you know, as Dr. Kendi said in the book, and I read, and I reread the prologue uh, this afternoon, he's like, this book isn't for those people. Right. They're not, they're not going to hear it. Um, and, and in some ways I agree, there are going to be people who are hardcore racist or whether it's assimilationist or segregationist who are right. not going to be able to hear it. But for sure. But there are also going to be people who start who if they do read this or if they encounter similar anti-racist ideas and messages will start to disentangle themselves and unravel the spurious notions of white privilege and supremacy. Well, I think it goes, it goes back to another idea. Um, going back to what you said a few minutes ago, the idea of these painful con uh, confrontational discussions. Mm -hmm. um, often, you know, we, we don't want to jump into those because, again, we're trying to be peacemakers or whatever. But we can eschew violence without saying that confrontation is bad. Confrontation yes. doesn't have to be violent. Confrontation can be productive. Um, so we can't shy away from it. Um, but I will say this, that the idea that I, I wasn't ready to hear certain things when I began to deconstruct religion, 
I wasn't ready to hear certain things. And it, I had to come along at my own pace. And so I don't know that I necessarily agree that some of these people will never, that, that very well may be true, but they may need to in their own timing. Um, right. And, and we don't know what the, what the trigger for that will be. I can almost pinpoint something that happened to me that began my journey down the deconstructive path uh, with regard to my religion. Um, up until then, it, it wouldn't have occurred to me. So I look at this and I say, I think there's always, there's always a chance that in those uncomfortable conversations, in those confrontive, um, sometimes even angry re- uh, rhetoric, Ah, rhetoric conversations <laughs> that there is value still associated with that if not for that person for those that may be a part of the conversation from a spectator viewpoint um you know or even if they're minorly involved but we never know when the re- what what's going to be said that's going to make somebody go oh wait a minute you know so i I mean, on any given day, I will vacillate. Like, do I really want to get involved in this conversation? <laughs> do I have the energy for this? Do I have the emotional bandwidth for this? And other days, I'm ready to jump in with both feet and then later wish I hadn't. <laughs> right. yeah. Such as such as the environment of social media. Um, but I think those conversations, even though they're confrontational, are important. And Absolutely. I don't think we should shy away from them just because they're uncomfortable. I think that we just have to be cognizant of our demeanor within those conversations. Right. It's kind of like the analogy of pacifism doesn't mean passive. Right. You exactly. know, and conflict. Well, the conflict is already there. Right. Um, as Bob Marley brilliantly sang in the song War, until the philosophy that holds one race superior and another inferior, then everywhere is war. Well, war is a big time fucking conflict. And, you know, it's a lot easier to deal with feelings and emotions and difficult subject matter than it is to dodge bullets. Right. And, uh, you know, bombs and, and all that sort of thing. So we have to delve into these things. And, and as as a person who you know does history and uh, historical research and things, one of the things that I appreciated so deeply about this book, and it's something that as an undergraduate when I wrote my papers I talked about too, is we have to tell the truth. Yes. About the history, warts and all. Right. Because if we mythologize it the way we have done, and if we teach only this whitewashed version of history. That's how you get so many people standing up and going, well, you're erasing our history by taking down these Confederate monuments. How many monuments to Joseph Goebbels do you think are in Germany? Right, exactly. Exactly zero. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's not erasing history. Monuments are to laud people who've done laudable things. Exactly. Or whose society thinks have done a lot of things. That's not how we learn history. So if we take these things down, it's saying as a society, we're done with this. We right. have moved on from this. Um, in my book, I straight up called Thomas Jefferson a, a, a rapist. Right. Well, I think a lot of people have that viewpoint. Yeah. But a lot of people think that he's this wonderful enlightenment figure. Right. You know? And 
and I appreciated that um, that Dr. Kendi started with him, uh, yeah, or you know, not started with him, but um, but but did a chapter on on him or a whole section on him. Yeah, um, I found that really interesting as well. Um, and I don't remember if it was in the, it has to have been in the part about, um, Thomas Jefferson, but one of the things that struck me and I actually had it starred, um, because it was something it, it hadn't occurred to me. Of course, obviously we've all heard of like, you know, Thomas Jefferson had biracial children from raping, um, women slaves that he owned, um, you know, that there were multiple children and all this. And, and for whatever reason, I've always just assumed that had to do with sex more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Dr. Kendi brings up the idea that um, white enslavers could reap financial reward because what whatever race the woman was is what determined the child. Yep. So if if a as a white man he had sex with a black woman and produced a child, that child then becomes a financial reward for him because it becomes a slave. It's considered black, even though it's biracial. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, I mean, it, that almost makes, well, it actually does make me kind of sick to my stomach because that is perpetuating progeny for financial reward. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, it's, it's mind blowingly callous and disgusting. Yes. yes. And you, you, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just even hard to, to wrap your head around. I saw a, a meme recently that said, um, don't be holding up pictures of your biracial children and pretending that you can't be racist. Guess who else had biracial children? That's right. Yeah, I saw Slave that the holders. other day. <laughs> I saw that the other day. <laughs> and I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. Uh, because I had in another social media interaction with a uh, Marine who has a wife who is African-American and he is white and he's a Trump supporter. And he was talking about Thomas Jefferson. And I was like, yeah, he's a rapist. <laughs> you know, yeah. End of discussion. Like you cannot uh, be the owner of a human being. And then that person who is enslaved cannot have agency to right. say no. And all non-consensual sex is rape. So right. it set up this, this weird thing where we had this highly patriarchal culture yes. for white people but then we did this matrilineal matriarchal thing for the enslaved women right whose uh children were then enslaved um right. and i saw oh god i i have forgotten her name there was an article in the new york times recently called uh entitled something to the effect of you want a confederate monument my body is a confederate monument oh wow and the writer of it um, said, all light-skinned Black people in this country are the result of in, being in, uh, ancestors who were enslaved and raped. Hmm. And so if you want a, con- a Confederate monument, just look at people like me, because here we are. Wow. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, the um, things we don't think about. I mean, yeah, that wouldn't have occurred to me. Never would have occurred to me, but that's the reality. Yeah. And I, I don't, you know, nobody knows the numbers of of how many children were born uh, to 
as a product of rape from overseers, masters, owners, enslavers of various descriptions. Right. Um, but it had to be a, a really high number for the reason that you stated, which Kendi says racist ideas get perpetuated because of people's self-interest. Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> you know, their economic self-interest, their power self-interest. And I was just like, oh, I had never really like seen it that way. Mm-hmm. But now it's obvious. Yeah. People hold on to their racist ideas because they're scared to let go because they might have to give up something. Right. White yeah. people are so scared of not being the, the top dog on the block, not having, not looking everywhere and seeing their culture, their music, their clothes, their right. language and everything. That, well, he actually he actually talks about that in the book. I mean, he brings it up from way back when. Um, yeah. But he has actual quotes in there from people that were like, "If we don't subjugate the black man, we will, of course, lose our way of life." Yeah. And and that's still an idea I think that is somewhat prevalent here and now, whether it's overt, you know, in its presentation or whether it is subversive through action. That as you're saying, that is something that's still there. Where to say that to admit to any kind of racist ideas, to admit that well, maybe a police officer is wrong and a black man was murdered, is somehow giving in to an idea that will end up costing us something. Right. And I mean, and it, rather than just it just being a human, you know, um, a, a human dignity issue we've turned it into something that we have to defend. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's shocking to me, especially coming from the Christian perspective, because I think you alluded to this, or you said this earlier, the idea that, you know, we're supposed to be about the other. Um, Christians are supposed to be self-sacrificing. You know, yes. we're supposed to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to uh, others before ourselves. And yet we will be the first one to defend ourselves at the expense of someone else. Right. And, and mm-hmm. so I, that is where I start having a large problem. I mean, over and above the obvious human perspective problem um, to, to justify a black man being killed and say, well, he probably brought it on himself. That assimilationist viewpoint mm-hmm. negates any kind of Christian understanding um, we could argue that Jesus brought it on himself. Oh, yeah. I mean, quite honestly, but he was still a victim of the Roman authorities. Right. They still took his life, regardless of whether that was, if you believe that's what he was sent here to do and that he willingly gave up his life, or if you believe, uh, you know, according to like some of our mimetic friends, that he came to show us God was different and allowed what happened to happen. Um, regardless, you can't say that he wasn't preaching and teaching in opposition to the Roman authorities, which then led to his death. Yes. So that's exactly it, right. it's an invalid argument. And yet it's one that we will justify over and over and over um, in order to not have to not have to admit that, yes, we are probably espousing some sort of racist viewpoint. But I guess I don't know. I think it you know what it is. I think the word racist has is so charged. Like I said earlier, most people won't even consider it because the, immediately it's self-justification or defense. Mm-hmm. Um, 
When instead, what we should be saying is, where do I fall short? Where do I espouse these kind of ideas or thoughts? Um, how, how could what I said be construed you know, negatively? Um, and ask those questions. You know, it's not enough to say, oh, I have plenty of black friends. Um, right. Maybe what you should be saying is, let me go ask my black friends what they think about me saying this. And then listen. Like, is this a problem? You know, and, and not be so ready to defend ourselves and say, I'm not a racist. Um, even though something you said maybe had those connotations behind it. <laughs> right. And if we don't know the depth of the issue, if we don't know the coded language of, right. of people like Donald Trump, uh, who use racist dog whistles all the time. Uh, just the other day, he was talking about if Joe Biden wins, there go the suburbs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, um, and, and somebody asked him what he meant by that. And, you know, black people are going to move in and, and the suburbs are going to be destroyed. Oh, uh, black people always already live in the suburbs. Um, right. Yeah. You know, exactly. <laughs> and, and in every other kind of neighborhood. And I think that we have to, from a, from a Christian viewpoint, Regardless of the history, right? If you look at what scripture says, you love your neighbor and you love your enemies, mm-hmm. period. Right. So holding up any group, and as he says, um, his definition of racism is succinct and brilliant. It's thinking that one group is superior and another is inferior, right. to paraphrase. Uh, well, that's not Jesus. That's no. not Paul. That's doing it wrong uh, from a Christian perspective. If we are serious about loving our neighbors, if we are serious about enacting the kingdom of God here on earth and and not just waiting for pie in the sky by and by, right? That, then we have to address these issues. It starts with us. Uh, it starts with me. Uh, continuing to learn my proximity to uh, an amazing and beautiful black woman uh, does not mean that I can't say and do racist things. Of course. Um, And, you know, but that's a card that gets played a lot. Oh, I got black friends. I can't be racist. Right. You know, or Um, here's a video of a black person saying what I already agree with. Yes. Yes. Here's a, Right. And, um, and I heard I, I heard somebody say something, either I heard it or I saw it written somewhere that that is weaponizing black voices. Yes. And I, yeah. I had to agree 100%. And, and quite honestly, I had to tell several friends that I know face to face, stop sending me your videos. I'm not interested. Right. Because until you're ready to educate yourself and read something like, like this book mm-hmm. and then come back and have the discussion with me, that video of a black person eschewing all of these other viewpoints of other black people is just you merely weaponizing their voice and they're allowing it yeah, and encouraging it. And I have a big problem with that. At the very least, you have to educate yourself on both sides to have that discussion. I had a discussion with somebody uh, once who was posting things from Candace Owens. Yeah, now, exactly. Now, <laughs> now, Candace Owens says things all the time that are demonstrably false. Right. This, this is not hard. 
You don't have to be a PhD historian to see that these things are demonstrably false because a lot of them are pretty basic facts of history. And I said to this person who was a white woman uh, that Candace Owens is perpetuating white supremacy. And she got really riled up and she goes, she's a black person. And how can you as a white person say that she's wrong? And I said, because she's saying things that are demonstrably false. It doesn't matter that she's black. Right. So you don't have a problem telling a black person they're wrong on something about racism. Absolutely not. If they're mm-hmm. saying something so demonstrably false and obviously racist, I have no problem with that. And- well, and the other side of that is you have to look at experience too. I mean, you again, if you're going out of your way to find that lone black voice or maybe that one or two black voices that will agree with what you already believe, as compared to the numerous, numerous other black voices that are saying the complete opposite, yeah. you're not looking for truth. You're looking for confirmation. It's confirmation bias at its simplest form. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And as, as a, a friend of mine named Imani uh, uh, that I met in Connecticut many years ago, she's a fellow Liverpool supporter uh, who's <laughs> black. And she she's, she's often saying on Facebook, not all... Uh, kin folk or skin folk or no not all skin folk or kin folk because <laughs> you know the candace owens of the world are perpetuating white supremacy and she was talking about candace owens and terry cruz uh, uh who who has been espousing some pretty assimilationist well, um, i haven't seen his rhetoric uh of late on social media mm-hmm. um but i would say that that this book uh is one of the most important books that I've read in quite some time. Oh, for sure. And uh, the copy that I have has hundreds, I'm not kidding, yeah. of, of flags, you know, the little sticky yep. flags, uh, <laughs> so that I can go back and, and look at things and, and still try to digest um, particularly the assimilationist ideas. Right. I mean, I remember watching the Cosby show. Oh yeah. And he talks uh, about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and thinking, you know, and not necessarily thinking anything other than this is a funny show. You know, I wasn't uh, thinking that it was a black show or, right. you know, a normal, whatever, but Oh my goodness. Yeah. But then I heard, I've heard um, the now disgraced Bill Cosby, uh, mm-hmm. sexual predator, Bill Cosby. Um, say a lot of different things that were assimilationist um, and people were taking him seriously. Like I heard him make a speech one time about uh, decrying the the use of names that don't sound American, mm. you know, Shaniqua, right. Taniqua, that kind of thing. Or, you know, uh, wearing um, oh, the, the African style cloth right. and, and that sort of thing. And him just, you don't live there. You, you know, you need to just name your kid Mike and wear your, you know, Cosby show sweater and you know, that, <laughs> like, that kind of stuff. Right. And it's like, at the time, I wasn't near where I am in my evolution now, but it's still, it was like, huh, <sighs> it didn't, you know, it just mm-hmm. didn't. It didn't land. Um, so it was kind of like tectonic, you know, like a, I don't, 
little minor tectonic shift. And I was like, ah, I don't know that <laughs> it sounds right, but at the right, same the time. Mm, and that's, that's one of the big takeaways is that right. this, the insidiousness of racist ideas has, has infected our culture and our society to the level that it produces people like Candace Owens right. um, or Dinesh D'Souza, who he also brought up in, yes. in this book. And that, yeah. that fucking guy. <laughs> Not a fan, I take it. <laughs> oh, no. He, he is the charlatan of, of, of the worst variety in Stripe. And I just... I just don't have time for people. Well, like we've that. got we've got quite a few politicians. I, I, oh, this was one of the things that I struck me as funny, and it's kind of going back into the book. And I, I know we're getting close to our time. Um, I don't know if you remember or not. I, I think it was on the section on reconstruction or reconstructing blame or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. He was talking about, the, you know, the I guess I don't know if I would call them stereotypes, um, but the myth involved with um, black sexuality mm-hmm. and the fact that. Um, oh, I got it. I have a note here on it. I want to find it real quick. He said, um, Klansmen religiously believed that blacks possessed supernatural sexual, sexual powers, and this belief fueled their sexual attraction to black women and their fear of white women being attracted to black men. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, you know, that's weird. Well, then, lo and behold, today, one of my friends posted a meme or a Twitter, uh, a, a tweet um, from. I don't know if he's, I think his name is Kevin Miller. He's running for the uh, 18th congressional seat in Florida. Okay. And he, this guy's a piece of work. <laughs> he, he tweeted this, to, uh, was on, on the 15th, so just a couple days ago. He tweeted, most white women join Black Lives Matter to fornicate with black men. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. He went there. Wow. He went there. Now, he's claiming he was hacked. He is claiming he was hacked, but he hasn't removed it. He's right, continuing yeah. the conversation. Anyway, I just thought that was so ironic because I had read this in this book. And and so when I saw that, I was like, where did I just see something about that? And then I was, oh, it's in this book. Like yeah. he literally brings this up, like the sexual mythology surrounding black men and women and how prevalent that still is in society today. <laughs> yeah. Right down if, to our politicians. Uh, oh, interesting. Wow, that's shocking. <laughs> if you've ever seen the show everybody hates Chris. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that show does a brilliant job of highlighting that particular, uh, type of racist thought with the, the teacher who is white, who Hmm. just fawns all over black men and makes (laughs) absurdly suggestive comments and, you know, uh, looks and all that stuff. And then out of the other side of her mouth, spits out every racist stereotype about like, Oh, so, um, do you know your father, Chris? Oh my gosh. You know? And he's like, I remember that show, but I don't, I don't have explicit, explicit memories of it. I know I've watched it, but I don't remember that. (laughs) And I'm just like, yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, again, so much of what he's talked about in this book is still very much central to the issues that we're talking about today in our society as it, as it pertains to race. Yes. Um, These are still all part of the conversation. And so again, we have not come as far as we would like to believe. Uh, I think that for many people, there would be a justification that, well, we've had a black president now. So of course we're (laughs) post-racial, which 
laughable considering that we have within our grasp, within, you know, we're able to find it very easily on the internet, multiple occasions of black men and women who are still facing very serious racial discrimination to the point of losing their lives. Yeah. Um, so I, again, this is not a conversation that's even close to being over. It's not post-racial at all. No. So. And, and bringing, bringing up these things does not make me a race baiter, which is uh, <laughs> a charge that racists have leveled at me for, oh, for bringing up sake. these kind of things. Yeah. Oh, race, race baiter. Sorry. I've done, uh, you know, enough reading to know that that's horseshit. Yes. And, um, and, and that these conversations just absolutely have to happen if we yes. are going to have anything like a decent and civil society. I agree. To say nothing of a theologically robust, uh, yes. you know, grounded and centered in the teachings of Christ kind of Christianity. I'm just talking about civil society. Right. Um, well, and again, we cannot, with any kind of justification, call ourselves a Christian nation until we do confront these things. Until oh, as yes. Christians, we are willing to humble ourselves and explain or or work on these issues, then we can't even call ourselves a Christian nation because we are not eschewing Christian, or we are not, um, we're not portraying Christian values. Right. And to Dr. Kendi's point, we shouldn't be trying to call ourselves a Christian nation anyway. Yeah, because, I agree with that 100%. So. Because that is an assimilationist idea. Right. That, that that's what's normal. Um, well, exactly. And it leaves out it leaves out so many people who obviously don't identify as Christian. Right. Um, which is another whole rabbit trail we can go down. <laughs> yes. I, have very, I have very strong political uh, ideas about that as well. Yes. Uh, I'm 100% in favor of separation of church and state. I don't think the two should ever meet. That's um, right because of, of the fact that it does leave out a large uh, portion of, a, of American citizenry that does not, as, you know, that doesn't say, hey, I'm a Christian. Right. So, but yet they are American citizens and still are entitled to the same rights. And anyway, again, a rabbit trail we can go down. <laughs> <laughs> and I could get pretty forthright with my opinions on. So, <laughs> But unfortunately, we are, we are at our time. And as I said, we didn't even begin to scratch the surface. Yeah. Um, of this book. So this is one definitely, again, that is something that inspires a lot of thought, um, a lot of self-reflection, which I think is a good thing and definitely could be read multiple times and still come away with something valuable each and every time. Um, so once again, you have presented a book to me that is fantastic. And I thank you. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> I think we have another one we were going to discuss, don't we? I mean, uh, what, yeah. what? is it Ernest Becker? No, it was uh, Walter Wink's engagement Walter Wink. powers. Yeah. yeah I, I've got Becker on my shelf too. So I, <laughs> I have so many, it's not even funny. But I literally have post-it notes of people's names on the front of the book that I'm supposed to discuss them with. And I know I have one over there with your name on it. So yeah, that's, um, that's the one. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have to set that one up next. <laughs> All right. <Sounds laughs> this like one just kind of stepped in because it is so very prevalent or, you know, yeah. it, so much in the mainstream right now. So it was definitely a conversation that was necessary. Um, and beneficial to the time. So, all righty. Well, thanks so much, Dylan. I appreciate you sitting down with me again and uh, hashing some of this out. I thank you for your uh, vulnerability and humility in the conversation. And I wish you the best. Thank you very much for having me, Michelle. All right. We'll talk again. Thanks.
All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I would definitely suggest getting this book. As I said, we barely scratched the surface on it, and there's so much historical value to the uh, information that's presented in the book, not only from a historical perspective, but certainly from a here and now perspective. Anyway, that has been Bookish Today. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.